the whole premise of this is wrong, Stuart. I think that um, this boogeyman of, of conservative bias on social media and on, on the internet more broadly is is a tactic that folks like Charlie Kirk have used this to basically try to intimidate Silicon Valley in the way they that they tried to intimidate for years mainstream media to discourage them from treating them equally. Episode 310 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us uh, uh, here in our homes uh, as we record this during the lockout uh, or lock-in. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we express here do not reflect those of uh, our institutions, our clients, our families, uh, uh, those who are forced to listen to us while we record this. Uh, uh, Joining me today, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, uh, formerly with the National Security Council and the Justice Department. Paul Rosenzweig, uh, uh, dialing in from Costa Rica, the founder of Red Branch Consulting and uh, fellow at the R Street Institute. Matthew Hyman, uh, a senior fellow with the National Security Institute, uh, formerly with the Justice Department. I am Stuart Baker formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur in today's program. Uh, We can't, since uh, we're doing this during the uh, coronavirus crisis, one of the hot tech issues is the extraordinary popularity of Zoom and the extraordinary privacy and security disasters that have dogged its path over the last few weeks. Paul, Zoom has a, had what has a Zoom number done of problems, uh, the most salient of which was that it scaled up over a thousandfold in the course of three weeks uh, unexpectedly and changed the entire demographic of its user base. I, I think it is uh, responding pretty well and will be better. Uh, I mean, some details, for example, Zoom was initially built for businesses uh, to have large-scale meetings uh, across uh, across uh, uh, many platforms. And as such, it was built for people who, who had strong IT departments that could figure their ways out. So a lot of its security implementation was optional. You could uh, enable password protection. You could enable uh, uh, the waiting room to keep unwanted people out. You could disable screen sharing for everybody. Those were the default positions because that was the user base. Uh, Of course, we fast forward two weeks and we've got a bunch of kindergarten teachers trying to keep, you know, 30 unruly kids on board and they set up Zoom meetings or their school system sets up Zoom meetings with no security enabled. And naturally the trolls, uh, you know, Zoom bomb it with pornography or hate speech or whatever. So answer is relatively simple. You know, make the security features default on. That'll make it harder to use for many people, uh, but it's a relatively simple solution, right? Other problems, obviously, uh, they oversold the strength of their encryption. Uh, In that, I don't think they were too much different than just about any other uh, uh, app developer, except perhaps, you know, uh, Signal, 
Uh, but you know, everybody else says more about their encryption than is than meets the eye. Uh, the answer to that, of course, is to say less about it uh, than you have in the past, and they've done that. Uh, you know, and and perhaps more to the point, unlike many people who just kind of say, "Hear your concerns." Uh, Zoom at least initially appears as though they're taking a lot of this very seriously. They've reprogrammed most of their engineering resources. Uh, they're going to get their asses sued uh, by state AGs. They're probably going to pay some fines. But uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll put it this way: I'm I'm continuing to use Zoom, uh, and I, and I would encourage. Yeah, I think that the, the yeah, New York. Uh, School system de-zooming themselves is a gross overreaction that's going to do more harm than good in the end. That's my take on it. So, yeah, I I I I I have the same sympathy for Zoom. It's a free product with massive increases that have exposed corner cases that probably wouldn't have been exposed previously or that could have been fixed uh, you know one at a time as they arose as opposed to having them all deluge uh, uh, the company I I kind of agree with you on the encryption I know the encryption purists say this is not uh, a proper implementation of encryption and it's not really end-to-end -end, but frankly, you know, uh, the end-to-endedness of the encryption uh, is probably not the, uh, you know, whether it is or isn't, it's probably not the biggest security worry that they've got. Uh, yes, they <laughs> they did a lot of developing in China. They stored, they, they sent a bunch of communications through China claiming it was because they didn't have enough bandwidth elsewhere. And those are, those are definitely problems. Uh, uh, the one, the, my favorite problem here is is uh, they had a feature that was meant to be kind of a convenience. If everybody on the call had the same domain, like um, uh, Stepto.com, uh, then you could automatically call up the LinkedIn data on anybody who was on the call to see who was on your call and get background on them. And that worked fine. Obviously, if the domain is Gmail or Hotmail or Outlook, uh, you wouldn't want that to happen. And they had gone through and blacklisted a bunch of those uh, domains, but they didn't catch them all. And it looks as though they there were two or three uh, domain providers in the Netherlands in particular who uh, uh, found themselves looking at strangers' LinkedIn profiles uh, because they were using a, a, a public domain. And, you know, I, all of those things strike me as um, suggestions that this is not a secure method to communicate with, and I wouldn't recommend it for anybody who's uh, doing government work or anything sensitive. But, uh, you know, if you're talking to your family, probably right. Exactly so, right. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 one, the one guy who really messed all this up is, uh, you know, uh, the prime minister of the UK who had a screenshot of his Zoom <laughs> with the domain yes. name out there. You know, I would not be having a cabinet meeting on Zoom. I would not be having a a, um, a business-based discussion that had serious confidential business information in it. I certainly wouldn't be conducting, you know, uh, the coronavirus uh, situation room meetings over Zoom. But, you know, short of that, uh, it remains, I think, a, a remarkably nimble product. It's pretty quality uh, and it's free, as you said, at least for the first 40 minutes. So there you go. All right. 
Um, so uh, let's talk FISA uh, because the inspector general uh, uh, popped out a report that no one was actually expecting uh, uh, that has led to uh, a FISA court order. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, what did the IG have to say? Well, this is the follow-on uh, to the Inspector General reports uh, regarding the breakdown in the FISA process with regard to Carter Page, the former Trump uh, campaign figure. And when they found those breakdowns in the four Carter Page applications, the Inspector General said, I'm going to look and do a broader survey to figure out if the problems that plagued the Carter Page applications apply to uh, FISA collection in other areas. And he did that. He looked at 29 FISA applications. He found problems in all of them. Uh, he said there were apparent errors and inadequately supported facts. And in 25 of those 29, in four cases, there were no Woods files. And for your listeners, a Woods file is essentially the way that the FBI is supposed to make sure that every fact asserted in its application is based on something. So for example, if the application says the target drove a blue Ford, there should be something in the Woods file that shows target observed in Blue Ford or registration of Blue Ford to target or something that, you know, there's a piece of paper that backs up every single assertion. It's basically a giant, it's it's a giant site checking exercise, uh, uh, like uh, what we all went through in uh, law school. Uh, if you were on the law review, you were sent out to find a citation for every damn sentence in a law review article, uh, I, and uh, uh, you had to had to connect that uh, sentence to an existing. Uh, piece of data or written product. Exactly. And it turns out, based on the Inspector General report, that uh, the FBI lawyers, agents, and I guess some DOJ lawyers should probably not have been on law review because they failed in this effort. I, I, I don't uh, excuse this. I think this this is a, uh, a sign that there's a problem for sure. Um but it's also easy to overstate it, and I think the press is enthusiastically overstating it. Uh, what what the IG said is, I didn't check to see whether there was data that supported these statements. I didn't check to see whether the mistakes I found were material, made a difference at all. Uh, and I did not check to see whether there were omissions or failures to include information that I thought was material. Two of those three things that he didn't check could turn out to dramatically reduce the uh, seriousness of some of these uh, uh, gaps. That's exactly right. And and he talked about the fact that um, you know there was a broader range of compliance checks that DOJ routinely does. And he says many of the, you know, and he, he recounted how many there were, and there were hundreds of those where the DOJ found something wrong, but ultimately determined the issue was not material enough to bring to the court's attention. Um, and so I suspect a lot of what's going wrong in these applications, and we don't have the benefit of looking at them and doing kind of the analysis that you described, Stuart, is, you know, a lot of times there are things that are, are wrong in applications, but it's something like uh, a statement that read as singular should have been plural. Um, you know, they can, be, you know, these applications are extremely long, extremely detailed. And the other thing that I think people need to keep an eye on is the fact that these are fast-moving national security investigations. So the idea that there could be some slight 
error or minor error in one of these doesn't shock me, nor does it tell me that there's something fundamentally broken about around the process. And I just think we need more information before we can make that assessment. Yeah, I think, for example, if, it, if, if the affidavit says it was a blue Ford and the supporting information is a witness statement saying, I saw a dark colored Ford come around the corner, you might say, okay, that's wrong. But uh, who cares? Right. I, and uh, uh, so we don't really know how serious this is yet. Uh, um, notwithstanding, uh, you know, this is not a good thing, uh, but it's early to to make a judgment, uh, notwithstanding all the judgments being made. Uh, Judge Boesberg put out a uh, an order in response to this that tells uh, the Justice Department to give him an explanation of whether any of the affidavits that he relied on or the FISA court relied on in issuing any of these 29 uh, uh, orders uh, were uh, materially inaccurate. So he's actually asking the Justice Department to do what the IG was planning to do, right? Yeah, essentially that's right. I mean, you know, or put another way, he's asking the Justice Department to certify that none of these things undermine the credibility of these applications um, specific to these 29. In other words, the Justice Department routinely does these compliance checks on, you know, random sets of these. And what he's saying is, I want you to do this compliance check on this set and tell me that these things are still stand. So that my I I had a little tweet storm over the weekend over about this in which I basically said he has asked for the his answer on twenty nine cases by I think June fifteen, which is like uh, you know two and a half months, uh, uh, but there's almost thirty cases. That's like four days per. Uh, uh, case um, in a, making a judgment that the IG wasn't ready to make because materiality is hard, gaps and omissions are really hard. To, um, and to ask them to do that in the middle of the coronavirus crisis when they can't easily go to work and they sure can't work on this stuff over Zoom or really any uh, remote system. You just do not want to be talking about these kinds of issues, handling this kind of data remotely at a time when, you know, I, I'm sure that Chinese and Russian intelligence have a pretty good idea who would be asked to do this work uh, and are desperately trying to figure out how to get onto the uh, the modems of everybody. Yeah, you're exactly right, Stuart. The other thing that, that tr strikes me about it, too, is in addition to the just the difficulty of executing the task, I've got to believe that um, the intelligence community is far busier today than it was on January 1st because these threat actors that you describe always take advantage of vulnerabilities in any system. So putting aside they're trying to interfere with this work of checking these applications, there's just more applications, I would suspect, trying to be put through the system because uh, our intelligence community is on high alert uh, around what you know, the Russias and the Chinas of the world are trying to do to us. Sure. All the misinformation, not to mention, oh, yeah, there's an election. Huh. I, I think the judge, uh, you know, in his world, this is the most important thing. Uh, and that leads him to set tight deadlines. But he's just going to have to uh, leave more time. Uh, and I hope uh, that the 
the lynch mobs that are out for the FBI uh, don't interfere with his giving them time to do it right and time to do it securely. Yeah. Okay, so content moderation. This is my hobby horse. I can't help. I want to dig into this one because I think it shows us what's wrong with the content moderation. Uh, but I'm sure that that Nate and others will disagree with me on some of the substance. But here's um, uh, the incident that uh, I'm uh, focused on. Twitter deleted an account, shut down uh, Rudy Giuliani's account because he had quoted a guy named Charlie Kirk, who runs Turning Point USA or is associated with them. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Kirk had said more or less the following, uh, uh, that uh, hydroxychloroquine has been shown to uh, have a 100% effective rate treating COVID-19, yet Democrat Gretchen Whitmer is threatening doctors who prescribe it. If Trump is for something, Democrats are against it. They're okay with people dying if it means opposing Trump, which is harsh for sure, and not as far as I can tell, strictly accurate. Uh, there, there have been at least uh, uh, three studies uh, that are not controlled trials, but which um, are evocative nonetheless. Uh, a guy in France who's treated a thousand people with this uh, and says that, uh, if I remember right, uh, they've all recovered. Uh, and you can argue with with his statistics and whether they would have recovered anyway. But you know that's a a, a pretty good sign. Uh, there were a couple of story of uh, studies out of uh, China that also uh, were supportive of using uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, uh, so given where we are, uh, saying, well, they're not the result of controlled trials is both accurate but insufficient. And that's pretty much what the uh, CDC has said. Well, yes, there's some there's some anecdotally supportive information that, that this is effective, uh, uh, and uh, it is certainly uh, safe uh, uh, for a prescription by uh, um, uh, doctors. Uh, so when Twitter says we took it down because we're only uh, we're blocking messages that go directly against guidance from authoritative sources, I wonder what the hell they're thinking. And I, I think I know it's that the the press has. Uh, when Trump endorsed this, you know, overenthusiastically for sure in his way, and Fauci came on and said, "Well, you know, no controlled studies. We're just still studying it. Uh, this is there's there's nothing proven here." Uh, the press the press treated that as a repudiation of Trump and suggested that Trump was uh, wanted to suggest Trump was selling um, a snake oil uh, uh, falsely to people, uh, uh, that he was defying science, uh, uh, all of the usual tropes about Trump, uh, which I think are, are, are not fair uh, uh, in this context. Uh, um, and, and so the question is, what the hell authoritative source is it that uh, Giuliani was uh, uh, defying? I just don't see it. There was also a suggestion that, well, they took it down because he was attacking Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, and uh, um, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, uh, but uh, he, I think what he said was perfectly fair comment. Uh, Whitmer has, was threatening doctors who prescribed it, uh, saying you can't do that because they 
uh, one uh, probably w- thought it was a way of striking at Trump. And second, uh, uh, made the argument, well, I, I, I'm afraid too many people will use this for this purpose and there will be shortages, which is a fair concern. Uh, uh, but she has changed her mind and asked for this drug now from the uh, federal uh, uh, store, uh, stockpile. Uh, and so if there's anything inaccurate about this uh, tweet, it's at the margins. And finally, I think that the, the Twitter allowed itself to presume that, that there was something wrong scientifically with this statement, apart from the 100% effectiveness, uh, uh, that uh, um, uh, is simply not justifiable by the facts. And what bothers me is that it's almost certainly a bias against Trump in the press that has driven Twitter to assume there couldn't possibly be scientific support for what Trump said because, you know, the New York Times was so skeptical. Uh, uh, And so they felt comfortable shutting down a major political spokesman of a party that everybody in Silicon Valley hates uh, and saying, you can't say that uh, on the basis of evidence that I just don't think is uh, is there. Uh, And so we're you know, when people say, yes, you have to worry that you could lose your civil liberties and civil rights in the middle of an uh, epidemic like this, I think this is the first signal that uh, Silicon Valley is going to say, I don't care that you represent the president of the United States. We are not going to let you speak. I, and, and we're not going to let you say things that later are going to turn out to be closer to true than the critics of uh, Trump have been. Uh, I'm not endorsing hydroxychloroquine, uh, uh, although, frankly, if I were sick, I'd be taking it uh, uh, because there aren't a lot of other great uh, 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 um, drugs out there. And, you know, I've taken uh, anti-malarials that were more dangerous than this for a month at a time. Uh, and that's what this is designed to be taken for. So there's a lot of people who've taken it. It is not completely safe, but it is safe enough to be used with care. Uh, and uh, the people who are suggesting that it's uh, it's poison and if you take it, you'll die like uh, the people that you know that according to at least one surviving witness uh, uh, took a different fish tank chemical because it had a similar name uh, you know that, that's that, that whole story and what's being made of it is another sign of press bias against the president uh, uh, and uh, uh, for it to enter into the discourse here as part of the scientific consensus strikes me as another you know it just goes to show that you can justify shutting down, anybody in a crisis if you are willing to accept uh, uh, the press's biases. Uh, And uh, I think that's what's going on. And this is the farthest that anybody in Silicon Valley has pushed the boat out. Uh, And if they don't get called on this, we're going to see more of it. All right, Nate, uh, that's that's my rant. Uh, uh, (laughs) You're you're free to tell me uh, where I'm wrong. 
I was. I think the whole premise of this is wrong, Stuart. As I think you know, I think that um, this boogeyman of of conservative bias on social media and on on the internet more broadly is is a tactic that folks like Charlie Kirk, who you know have built their entire career and and living off of pushing propaganda out on these mediums, and you know uh, I think that they have used this to basically try to intimidate Silicon Valley in the way they, that they tried to intimidate for years, mainstream media to avoid them, to, to discourage them from treating them equally with everybody else. And it's so sort let of me, let me stop you. Let me stop you on that. Well, one. he said, she said, yeah. Yeah. Let me stop you on that one because there is no doubt that there is mau mowing of the uh, um, uh, of Silicon Valley, just as there was mau mowing of the press, and that it happens on the right, uh, uh, but it happens on the left too. I mean, what is media matters, but a uh, a lefty mau mowing organization designed to force the press to, to lean even further left. Uh, I, I, the fact that that happens doesn't mean that there isn't a bias just as the uh you know there is a there is a bias against the president at the new york times and at cnn and i i you you can't look at either media without seeing that i i think that if you if you look at the body of content that charlie kirk has pushed out over his career to his 1.7 followers and the people who follow them you would find a lot of things that would meet the definition of what should be taken down and hasn't been. And why is that? It's because people are afraid to enforce these rules evenly against conservatives because they complain when they do. And what you have to look at here is the facts, and these facts are important. You have people, as you acknowledge, taking drugs because they have similar names because they think that um, it's a miracle cure. They think that Charlie Kirk is correct in this being 100% effective. And the facts are, it is not. Wait, we, ha- we have that story from somebody who um, hates Trump. The, the wife in this story hates Trump and has post, has had uh, uh, but uh, Stuart, social media posts. The first yeah. control so, test you know, in, in, in China says no effect. I mean, it's not, you know, this is No, I, this I, I is agree quackery. with you. There, there is masquerading no, as as opinion oh, from somebody who has absolutely no background at all charlie kirk right no clue. now i'm more than willing to believe that it's possible that this might be effective right yes, and in a perfectly I, 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 libertarian right. world people who are intelligent enough to know what they're doing could could take it themselves like you but the entire reason we have the fda is because that's not reality and Charlie Kirk but is the FDA. Reality, the the, the FDA has said, "Go ahead for Twitter to take down things that will get more that may very well get more people killed than save them." So uh, the FDA has said, and and that was pretty clear from what uh, Fauci said the first time this came up. The FDA has said, "Yeah, if 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 a doctor prescribes it." You can use this for that purpose. Uh, 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 everybody. I mean, I think the I FDA would say that about virtually every controlled substance that doctors are allowed to provide, right? And and that's the point. But what you what Charlie Kirk and others are doing here is encouraging people to go 
encourage their doctors to prescribe this to them when they don't need it. They're going out and looking for other sources of these kinds of things to obtain this stuff. And that's dangerous. So and now what, people but are now what is we're saying is and what these what, now, studies have shown is not that it's effective. They've shown that when it's prescribed by a doctor in combination with a variety of other treatments, it's helped to address some of the symptoms of COVID. So yeah, that, we yeah, know so very little about this at this point, but, but I, I, he's look, out I there saying it is 100% effective at getting rid of this. And, and that is absolutely untrue at this point. There is no evidence to support that. And he's out pushing this to people who aren't informed and posing as somebody who knows something about this, which as Paul said, he knows nothing, which I, is I, true I, of virtually everything he tweets out on his account. Again, you, you, they should are be, you following him? Because I've never seen his stuff. But uh. No, but I pulled it up because I knew we were going to talk about this morning. And it is 100% garbage. And so, but this is what they chose to shut him down on, right? They, they, they said we time. have more leeway to shut him down on this. Uh, Better late than never. It, well, I, I, I guess I, you know, the argument that too many people will see this and might be persuaded by it, even though it's kind of uh, overenthusiastic, that the answer is that Twitter should not allow them to see it. Not overenthusiastic, Stuart. Killing. I mean, I'm on Charlie Kirk's webpage right now, and here are the, you know, like the top five tweets. He is supporting Pastor Rob McCoy of Thousand Oaks, who is trying to continue to hold his um, uh, services oh, his, this his, weekend. It's Easter Sunday, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? Uh, he says Palm, Palm Sunday services should have gone along. That's contrary to every doctor, including... Uh, you know Donald Trump. Yeah, right? and it's not, you know, like I'm, I, I, I don't defend that. I, th I think it's stupid. But you, you, you're going to say he shouldn't be allowed to say it? I think he gets people killed. I'm not saying he shouldn't be allowed to say it. It's up, right? Right. It's up. He's being so allowed this to. Is, uh, this, this is this is this is this is Rudy Giuliani who was taken down too. It's not here, just Charlie. Here Pitt. is Democrats. Here's one against China has been given a seat on the U.S. Well, actually, that one's. Probably pretty reasonable. And <laughs> Here's one um, uh, alleging without evidence that the virus has come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China, right? And, Stop and I've, using I've Zoom immediately. Any tech company that aligns with China must be excommunicated, right? You, look, I, I'm not sure he's wrong on that, or at least you uh, know, it, it, what he's I'm saying. Not, is I'm not sure he's wrong on it there, as, right? a, as a statement. He's Even, wrong on it as a factual matter. In that instance, he won't get people killed, so it's okay. Right? They, I think Even Twitter a broken did the clock right is right twice a Take day. Take down the ones that will kill people. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not sure how many of those things end up proving your case because we probably agree with them uh, or close on that uh, or reasonable people could certainly agree with them on Zoom. Uh, and uh, uh, several of the others I thought uh, came out uh, plausible enough. Uh, and they took down Rudy Giuliani as well, who's not as far as I, well, again, I don't follow him, so I don't know. But uh, this, is the, this is where they chose to fight. Uh, and it was because it was an attack on a Democratic governor and because it was praising as effective uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is 
not wrong. I'm mean, 100% effective strikes me as probably not correct. Uh, it's wrong, uh, yeah. and, and to suggest that the uh, studies are unanimous, which she doesn't say, but which you know would be a reasonable interpretation of this, is also wrong. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a possibility, and in a world where we're grasping at straws, possibilities deserve very careful examination. And for the governor of Michigan to say you may not uh, prescribe this it sounds more like score, trying to score points on Trump than to take care of her uh, uh, constituents. Uh, uh, and that is his ultimate point here. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I think this is a, a situation in which if you're inside the bubble that I believe Twitter inhabits, um, this seems like totally anti-science because you're not hearing uh, the uh, the science on the other side. Uh, uh, and uh, when the science that you happen to hear in your bubble is the science you treat as authoritative, uh, you're going to end up engaging in very biased uh, censorship of speech. Nate, last word, and then I'll move on. Well, I think I think that if if the the folks who were responsible for conducting the studies you discussed a minute ago were to tweet out accurate representations of what they found, Twitter would leave that up. And as you've said, the Charlie Kirk tweet is not accurate, meaning it is false the way it is representing the results of these studies. So I think Twitter is responsibly trying to protect people from this type of misinformation and propaganda. And I don't think it's about a Democratic governor. I think if the Democratic governor had not been mentioned, they would still take something like this down. And, and I think it's the responsible thing to do at this point, given the, the significance of the potential consequences. All right, Nate. Nate for one welcomes our new tech overlords. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, Matthew. Who's going to get us first, Twitter or the Saudis? Uh, it's it, we're neck and neck, Stuart. Based on your your take on Twitter, I think you would say it's a close horse race. Uh, but yeah, there's a story that uh, came out saying that the Saudis are suspected of using. Um, text message information requests. So um, there's a global messaging system called SS7. That's what sort of organizes data and text messaging when people are traveling with their phones around the world. And it allows, you know, so if, if you're if you're signed up with Sprint and you go to Saudi Arabia and you're texting people, Sprint wants to know what you've texted and how much so they can figure out roaming charges. In this case, they're saying it's the opposite story. The Saudi services, phone services, are routinely pinging U.S. carriers to get information about Saudi nationals traveling through the U.S. And experts that have looked at the pattern of requests and, more importantly, the frequency of requests say this is essentially a stealth surveillance operation because if I keep pinging uh, Verizon and AT&T and Sprint and others for information, I can build kind of a picture of where you're going uh, you know, in a city or in a place. And so uh, there's some concern that the Saudis are using this as a way to track dissidents and others that they're nervous about. And nobody says, I mean, that this this is how SS7 works. Uh, and it would be hard to come up with a, a, a new system uh, uh, that uh, involved roaming and had charges like this uh, um, without providing location data. So 
what we're really being told here is not that we should be shocked the Saudis are spying, but that they're spying so much because no one's going to be able to stop location espionage. Uh, all they can do is try to hold it down to a uh, uh, an acceptable minimum. I think that's right, and you know, I, th- I think it's also a reminder. You know, whether you're up to something nefarious or you're not, this little gadget you carry in your pocket reveals a tremendous amount of information about you, and that's the trade you're making for all the conveniences it delivers. So if you are not wanting to be tracked, don't carry a mobile phone, or if you're not wanting to be tracked vigorously, carry a burner phone that you get rid of. All right. Paul, um, this was an interesting lawsuit by a bunch of what used to be called testers, people who want to test various uh, uh, private sector operators for uh, uh, race or gender or age bias. Uh, And they want to, they they filed this lawsuit against the Justice Department saying, we want to go in and violate the uh, terms of service of a whole bunch of online companies offering uh, services of one sort or another. We want to sign up and pretend to be African American and then uh, look exactly the same except uh, white, uh, et cetera, do the usual tester thing. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to use fake IDs, and that's a violation of the terms of service. Um, and we want to know that you're not going to prosecute us for violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, how did that uh, end up, uh, and do you agree with it? Yes, this is exactly as you described it, Stuart, Uh, a lawsuit in the District of Columbia in front of Judge John Bates, one of the smarter judges around, uh, about the scope of the CFAA. And as you said, they were going to use the, uh, to violate the terms of service of a bunch of websites, mostly by lying uh, in their their, uh, submissions to the websites, which is exactly what testing entails. And the question broadly writ is whether or not Um, The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act criminalizes uh, such lying. The the statutory language says access without authorization or in violation of authorized limits. And uh, for a number of years, people have been debating whether or not in violation of authorized limits means uh, in violation of the terms of service. Uh, So, you know, at its extreme, if Facebook says that if you're under 13, you can't have an account and you lie to get an account by saying you're thir- you're 14 when you're actually 12, um, in theory, that would be a CFAA violation if you extended the terms of service language that far. Most people uh, who've, who've read about this have often thought that that was an overly aggressive and extreme reading of CFAA, if only because it meant that the criminalization of access to the net was uh, in the hands of private sector actors who could change their terms of service at will. Uh, And so, for example, to hark back to what we were just discussing, not only take down uh, Rudy Giuliani, but potentially make him into a felon for uh, his retweeting of Charlie Kirk, uh, which would... I think oh, I, I, that's, I, you're, you're absolutely right. That, that would be a violation of their terms of service retroactively because they said so. Right. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, he had accessed Twitter uh, in violation of an in excessive authority and consequently had committed a crime. He'd have to have $5,000 worth of damage to make it a felony. But yeah, you could get there. Ha- happily, happily for uh, 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 users of the network, the trend is generally 
against that interpretation, including the case that we have here, um, which says uh, essentially that CFAA violations are tied to actual uh, circumvention of access controls. That is, you know, uh, stealing a password or or uh, or spoofing a, a limitation that is designed to prevent access in some other form. And it strikes me that that is by and large the right answer. Whatever we may think about, uh, you know, not letting Charlie Kirk or, or Rudy Giuliani or or Gretchen Whitmer have access to to Twitter in some instances, uh, I think we could all agree that criminalizing it has probably gone too far. And so the court interpreted the CFAA as restricted to what we might call the technical means of of illegal access, rather than. Uh, violating uh, subjective terms of service and dismissed the pre-enforcement lawsuit as moot since he said nobody could nobody's going to be able to prosecute you for that, uh, which I think is probably the right result. So here's a, a, I'll tie it back uh, as well to the earlier uh, story. Uh, this means that um, and, and I address myself here to all the foundation executives who happen to listen to this, and I'm talking about you, Hewlett. Um, a, if you gave us something under $100,000, uh, we could set up hundreds of fake uh, YouTube and uh, uh, Twitter uh, and Facebook accounts and engage in a variety of behavior that Republicans and Democrats are boohooing they've been shut down for doing to see if, in fact, that's what was going on or if maybe it's something unique to that particular person. So we just have all our fake accounts go off and, and uh, uh, post slight variations of the things that people are claiming they've been shut down for uh, and see exactly what is triggering the shutdowns and uh, be able to uh, actually have some data in this area. So, you know, for less than $100,000, you could be providing the really uh, canonical data about content moderation bias. So uh, uh, call uh, uh, call the R Street uh, uh, Institute, uh, uh, and both um, uh, I and uh, Paul will uh, will be back in touch with you. Although we'll, Paul, we'll, we'll do that really program for you, Hewlett. <laughs> yeah, right away. Uh, Stuart and I will be your principal investigators. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Nate, um, Washington State has a facial recognition law that Microsoft likes. Uh, uh, pres- the president of Microsoft, uh, uh, Brad Smith, said, uh, I like this bill. Uh, it turns out it was actually written and introduced by a uh, legislator who also works for Microsoft, about which there's been a lot of complaint. Uh, uh, but I thought it was a an interesting and, to my mind, kind of uh, a dangerous uh, uh, law. Um, but you probably, you know, you you live with it. Uh, uh, what what do you think it uh, its impact's going to be? Well, you know, I guess first off, I would say I think that this is a positive step with the knives out for facial recognition, despite its potential benefits, um, particularly among uh, the privacy community. I think. Washington deserves some credit for stepping up and figuring out how to regulate this in a way um, so that the technology can can be used safe and effectively. Um, 
you know, whether or not this law does that sufficiently, I think time will tell. And, and I'll get to a couple of questions that, that come to mind for me. But they're doing the hard work of trying to figure this out when other jurisdictions have just resorted to outright bans or, or bans on particular types of uses. Um, the couple of things that stick out to me are, are the testing of this. Um, and basically, there's a recognition both in, in the private and the public sectors that there's a risk that um, because of who's building these things and how they're built, that they could have um, biases built into them. And, and um, I think this is a, a positive step. Basically, what the law says is that um, technology companies offering these services um, have to, um, before going to market, open them up to testing by third parties. And I actually think that this is a good thing uh, to try to push uh, technology companies in the direction of of ensuring the effectiveness and accuracy of these types of technology. The million dollar question for me here is, is ultimately who's going to be testing these things and, and how, how effectively are they going to test them? Um, you know, depending on, on the types of tests and models they run against them, they may, um, you know, miss biases. They may, uh, you know, inaccurately flag um, problems that aren't actually problems. And, and so, you know, outsourcing this kind of stuff to independent third parties could be a good thing, but there could be some, some hidden costs that we, we only find out about uh, further down the road. Um, the second thing that jumps out at me is, is again, a, a bit of a double-edged sword. I think there are some protections for civil liberties in here, some, some transparency and accountability provisions that again uh, are are positive, but they are all directed at the public sector. And while I wouldn't argue the public sector should be exempt from these things, I think it's a good thing to apply these types of protections and safeguards to them. This won't only be used by the public sector, and there could be um, uses by the private sector that are equally as harmful to individuals and. Um, I think that governments and and um, civil society organizations should continue to be out on on the lookout for those kinds of things, and and help to ensure that private sector use of of these types of technology isn't um, isn't being used to discriminate or disadvantage uh, certain people. Yeah, I think I you know I. It... People who are a little more cynical than you and I might say that the thing Microsoft likes best about this bill is it only applies to state and local government agencies. Yeah, uh, and uh, and 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 that's which is not a market that uh, uh, anybody's going to make a boatload of money on, or at least not somebody the size of Microsoft. So it heavily regulates state and local uh, agencies and does nothing about the private sector. Uh, your your suggestion that there's going to be problems with the testing, I think. Is addressed, maybe over addressed, by the creation of a commission that is extraordinarily heavy on advocacy groups and identity groups of all sorts uh, um, who are supposed to decide whether the testing is adequate. Uh, um, and, and to my mind, that's the real problem with the bill is that uh, uh, it it assumes that something is unfair if it has a disparate impact, if it is not 
equally efficient for, uh, with respect to all um, favored identity groups. It, it more or less uh, uh, describes them that way as, uh, um, uh, I won't, they, don't, they don't use this, the phrase favored, but uh, um, it, it is uh, uh, distinct subpopulations defined by race, skin tone, ethnicity, gender, age, disability status, or other protected characteristics uh, objectively determinable or self-identified by the individuals. I think this is their effort to, 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 to bring uh, uh, transgenders into the group that would be protected by this. Uh, and, and that's the problem. It identifies a few subpopulations or identity groups that uh, uh, are current favorites on the left uh, and says you cannot have an impact on any of these groups because that will be unfair. And if you have an, a disparate impact on these groups, you have to fix it. Now, it doesn't tell you how to fix it, but there aren't a lot of ways to fix stuff. Now, it's it's, it's particularly weird in this area uh, uh, because you're just trying to figure out who this person is. And if uh, if you fail because the, uh, you, you're not good at uh, uh, identifying people with darker skin, it's not even clear whether that's good or bad for people with darker skin. Uh, a, a, but then you they ask, well, how would you fix that? I think it has to be that uh, in order to make sure you're not going to have a disparate impact on people with darker skin, you have to ignore what you think are probably good identifications of people with lighter skin, which is just weird. Uh, uh, but I, that, that I think is where this is pushing everybody is you have to build a quota in, in the back door of your system uh, uh, to make sure that it is as harmful to every group as it is to the most disadvantaged group by uh, errors in your technology. Um, and, and I will, I will just re recall Zoom's problem in that uh, they, uh, they did not, they had a disparate impact on people in the Netherlands and their privacy because they had failed to realize that there were these uh, 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 domains in the Netherlands that were widely used, but which were not individual companies. Uh, you know, if if uh, I'm guessing that no one is going to say the Dutch are a distinct subpopulation that we have to be specially uh, worried about, uh, but it's just you know this is these are mistakes that happened, and I think it's more appropriate to treat them as mistakes than to treat them as um, giant uh, 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 invocations of apartheid from the, uh, the ages past. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little less uh, cynical about this than you are. I mean, I think, I think, you know, there's an incentive for these companies to, to ensure that their facial recognition technology is as accurate as possible, right? Um, making it uniformly crappy across races or genders or, or other categories um, isn't really going to help them sell it at the end of the day. And so I think the incentives will be for them to bring up the, the places where they're having problems and do better. And, and I, and, you know, that involves, you know, making sure that they're, 
incorporating more photographs of of African Americans or or other don't forget uh, the Dutch or, don't forget you know, the Dutch women or Dutch <laughs> or you know yeah um, into into their their testing and into their AI models to make sure that they're as accurate in identifying them as they are in you know Caucasian people um, and so. I, I'm a little bit more um, optimistic about its chances to encourage industry to move in the right direction and improve some of these problems. And and you're right, there are some safeguards on the back end through this commission, but you know because those people are not by and large technologists and data scientists, they're ultimately going to be heavily dependent on the findings of these third parties who are actually doing the testing um, to make their judgments. And that's where I think um, there there are some potential um, problems in the long run if you don't pick the right people to do that. This feels more to me like environmental impact statements, which were adopted as a requirement and, and a perfectly sensible one. You know, you ought to know what the impact of your public project is going to be on the environment, uh, but which turned into a massive litigation scam and and a, effectively a roadblock for any uh, politically controversial public uh, uh, activity. Um, the the requirements for testing here are quite stringent, and it's going to be very mm. hard and very expensive uh, uh, to meet these requirements, and very few people are going to do it just to sell stuff in Washington. Uh, so my guess is this is a ban by a different name, uh, or it will turn out to be a a gradual ban as people come to realize through a bunch of litigation just how much uh, uh, they have to do. Um, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, Matthew, uh, the um, WHO is getting hacked uh, and and probably not just by one nation. The question, I think, is who's not hacking them? Because it sounds like even the second team is getting into the act. Yeah. Uh, so the Iranians are have been caught apparently trying to hack uh, WHO with phishing attempts. Um, and you're right, Stuart. It, I, I don't know any nation that wouldn't be trying to get into WHO's files right now, whether it's trying to figure out if there's you know, uh, a new report that's going to come out from WHO that indicates how they should be handling the virus, or they're trying to get profiles on the people that run WHO, or they're trying to figure out if WHO is aware of some miracle cure that's on the way. Um, it's obviously, you know, a rich target in the current uh, climate, and the Iranians appear to be in on the act. And, you know, they're not the only rich target. Marriott uh, is hacked again. This is not the first time they've been hacked, right? They uh, they lost uh, a bunch of data uh, and announced it in the middle of the coronavirus when probably nobody's paying attention. Yeah. According to uh, the reporting, 5.2 million customers were exposed. Uh, didn't expose uh, super sensitive information like passport numbers or credit cards, but it did give they, the hackers did access names, addresses, birthdays, email, phone numbers. And you're right, this comes on the heels of a really huge breach that Marriott experienced uh, within the last 18 months. And so it's already going through the ringer with uh, regulators in the UK and other places over that one. And it's just going to get worse from here. And it's sort of surprising that Marriott didn't really get its act together after the last event. But um, it shows just how difficult some of these problems are to fix. Yep. All right. And uh, uh, to uh, uh, to close the uh, uh, the discussion, uh, um, uh, just to update you, uh, 
from the discussion about the Singapore app that we had uh, uh, in the last episode. Uh, I have uh, I've heard from some folks. I wrote it up uh, on Lawfare uh, why I thought this is something we ought to be doing, uh, and I have heard from other folks who were you know reasonably uh, significant players in the uh, emergency responder field uh, that uh, uh, there's at least one, maybe more than one uh, team at uh, a couple of high-tech universities uh, working on trying to develop uh, an app that would uh, essentially allow people to to know uh, retroactively if anybody they've been in touch with in the last two weeks, that is to say in contact within 10 feet, uh, uh, has been tested as positive. Uh, I'm I'm really hopeful that we're going to get to that because I think we're going to be in for testing for many months as we try to bring the uh, the country's economy back. Uh, and uh, uh, knowing that uh, you'll get quick warning that you might have been infected is going to be one of the reasons why people are going to be willing to come out of their homes. So I'm hoping that this will uh, uh, come along soon uh, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, in an open source and nonprofit form. Uh, Nate, uh, thank you for being such a good sport. Uh, uh, also, thanks to uh, Paul Rosenzweig and Matthew Hyman. Uh, uh, this has been episode 310 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us feedback at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Suggest a guest, and if they come on, we will send you our highly coveted uh, Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, uh, rate the show. Leave us a review. I, I just got a review uh, from uh, Bridget. W of Australia, who uh, uh, says, I've been listening to this podcast for a year and very much appreciate the in-depth conversations and technical expertise of the host and guests. I find it refreshing to hear positions and arguments of people with other values and positions than my own. Well, Brid W, you got an extra helping this time. Uh, and it's hel- it's helpful to get out of the bubble. Uh, uh, but please, please have more diversity. And uh, Brid W then makes a plea for uh, more women on the show. Uh, uh, believe me, I, uh, I, uh, I resonate to that frequency. So uh, uh, we'll do our best. Uh, and uh, thanks to everyone uh, uh, for listening. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.